Good morning. Happy post-Thanksgiving Sunday. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for this beautiful weather and the sunshine. Thank you so much for bringing my brothers and sisters and us here safely together today. I pray that we would um, learn from your word today, that we would sit under it and um, be grown and brought up to maturity by it. And I pray that our worship today would be pleasing in your sight. Give me uh, the words to say that I might not get in the way of this passage and that uh, you'd be glorified by it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. On your tables in front of you, you should have the handouts of the passage. Today, we jump into the very first chapter of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. Thanks to those raccoons, we're a little bit, uh, a little bit off schedule here, but hopefully going to right the ship before uh, this school year calendar finishes. 2 Samuel begins right where 1 Samuel left off. In fact, the first words of the text denote the event from the previous chapter, after the death of Saul. This new chapter takes place right after the last one, two days after, in fact, because the very next words in the text denote time, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites. The Amalekites, you'll recall from Brian's lesson two weeks ago, had attacked David's camp and carried off all their loved ones. David struck them down, of course, recovered every last one, and now has returned with his army back to Ziklag and has decided to remain there for two days. The mood in the camp couldn't be higher. It would be absolutely jubilant. The armies returned victorious. The enemies of God have been defeated. Families have been recovered and reunited. Spoils have been shared with the elders of Judah and all of David's friends. And everyone is back together again. Sounds like a time for feasting, for celebration, doesn't it? A, a right Thanksgiving text, if there ever was one. But David, so David decides to stay put. He decides to remain in Ziklag for two whole days. You can almost feel the extravagance of this decision from over 3,000 years and 3,000 miles away. David, of course, has gone back into fugitive mode. You see, after having his camp plundered and family kidnapped, his guard is right back up. But as this chapter is going to make us aware, David is in the dark. Events are underway. Events he knows nothing about. The skirmish with the Amalekites occupied all of his attention. And while that mission took place, a bigger picture and broader plan has come into focus. As David will soon learn, he is now the sovereign in Israel. And this first chapter of 2 Samuel will bring his first test as king. And it's a test that comes from an unlikely source, from a messenger. One who claims the credit for David's new promotion. The news he brings David is the only information David has at his disposal. The only account available, it would seem, of the events taking place in greater Israel. But as flawed as it is, that account cannot prevent the true king from fulfilling his office. For David is ready to lead, flawed man that he is. And leading God's people will demand a quality from him 
that both the foreign messenger and the Israelites themselves did not see coming. Once again, the author of the books of Samuel uses a small and anticlimactic episode to remind us God's ways are not man's ways, and God's people are not to be like the rest of the world. The king, therefore, must not act like any old king. He is a mediator, not a sovereign. And if he truly fulfills that office, his leadership will counter the politics that rule this world. In 2 Samuel 1, David does just that. He begins the difficult work of course correcting the monarchy of Israel by redirecting it back to its true king. Let me say that one more time. In 2 Samuel 1, David begins the difficult work of course correcting the monarchy of Israel by redirecting it back towards its true king. So let's dive in. I want to start by reading the first 16 verses, page one of your handout. We'll cover that. And then we'll flip it to the back, read the second section, and cover that. 2 Samuel 1, 1 through 16. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered him, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. The first point I'd like to make this morning, and the main one on this first section, is this. 
The will of the Lord will again reign in Israel, not the whims of the king. The will of the Lord will again reign in Israel, not the whims of the king. That may seem a strange claim to make, given that all David does in this chapter is order an execution and compose a poem. Those aren't exactly the most glamorous forms of royal worship. I mean, this is the guy who dances the Ark of the Lord back into Jerusalem, after all. So let's take a closer look, and let's do it by examining the first action, the execution. And I'm going to do so by asking this question. Is David's decision to execute the Amalekite a justified one? Let's start with this man and his story. What news does he bring David? That's kind of obvious, right? Saul's dead. But more than that, what act is he taking credit for? Did anybody notice? What act is the messenger taking credit for? Absolutely, that he killed Saul, whereas in the last chapter we heard Saul killed himself. That he took Saul's life as a sort of act of mercy of sorts to avoid being killed at the hands of his enemies. As readers, we know from last week, 1 Samuel 31, that some Amalek, did some Amalekite take Saul's life? No, Saul took his own life. So from the get-go, the reader knows an insight on this guy, don't we? A hint that something is likely up and his narrative is likely fishy? That's us, though. We're the reader. This guy's lying. He's absolutely lying. But we, David, doesn't know that, does he? As far as inside information goes, what does David have? Reports from the Battle of Mount Gilboa seem in short supply, as it would turn out. And that's because Israel was absolutely routed. There's not a whole bunch of people running back with news of the events. So all David knows is what this guy has to say. He doesn't even... We don't even know that he eventually gets the true outcome of the narrative by the end of the day. So let's put ourselves in David's shoes. What does David see? How does this man appear? Well, first and foremost, this guy looks the part. Chapter, verse 2 says, his clothes were torn, and it also says dirt is on his head. Second, what does the man say? Well, before he ever speaks, before he speaks, he pays homage to David and bows down to him. So right away, we have a messenger who recognizes David's rank and observes the rights of royalty. In addition, he doesn't launch into his narrative. He plays it cool. He waits for the king to ask him a question until he gives any information up. Then when he does speak, as in verse 3, he sticks to the question. The question asked, and offers no additional information. David asks, hey man, where do you come from? And he says, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Now, I don't want to read too much into these early short interchanges between David and the messenger. We can't hear their tone. We can't hear the the way this man was saying what he was saying. But I want you to see what David is seeing. And I want you to hear what David is hearing. This is, after all, all he has to go off of. And as a king, he's going to have to make a decision about this man. The messenger looks the part. He has the dirtied and battered look of a soldier on the run. He also sounds the part. 
He has the patience and respectfulness of a professional messenger reporting to a man of higher rank. Most important of all, though, he comes bearing the goods. He's got the royal symbols, the crown and the armlet of the king himself. So this first test that David is facing as king, this is not an easy scenario to break down. This guy absolutely looks the part, sounds the part, and comes bearing the goods to confirm his story. So here's the more interesting question. How does David see through it? How does David figure out this guy is a liar? As Ralph Davis says, I didn't bring it with me today, it's a wonderful commentary, Ralph Davis. It's so accessible and it has all these amazing stories. If you're into 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, he has two volumes on it. His name's Dale Ralph Davis and he just has so many wonderful anecdotes that make the word of God come alive. He's fabulous. I highly recommend it. If you need to get the link for Amazon, just come up, talk to me afterwards. Anyway, as he points out in his commentary on 2 Samuel, there's a suspicious gap in this man's narrative. According to the messenger, who was with Saul when the messenger found him? Do you remember from the reading? Who's with Saul? Somebody said it. Back in the last chapter, we know the armor bearer was with him, right? But in the Amalekites' version, this messenger's version, who's with him? Anybody? Hmm? Jonathan could be with him because he said he's dead, right? But who's with him living? Anybody? You got chariots and horsemen. You have nobody named except Saul by himself and these enemies closing in on him. It's a bit suspicious especially since we know the armor bearer was with him in the previous chapter. David doesn't know that, though. We do, so right away our guard is, if we, if we see that detail, our guard is up. But David doesn't know who was with Saul, and it is quite out of character for the king to go anywhere unaccompanied. So even though this, this omission probably doesn't catch the guy in his lie, David's guard was probably up while he was listening. Saul wouldn't be by himself. His armor bearer would stay with him to the death. But at the point he hears this, David does not interrogate the messenger any further. On the contrary, as soon as he finishes with this part of his narrative, David tears his clothes and enters into a state of mourning. Yet he does not seem to trust the messenger because once he finishes that narrative, once he finishes mourning actually, David continues to question him further. So he believes Saul's dead, but something's off. In fact, in verse 17, uh, sorry, look at verse 13. What question does David ask the Amalekite in verse 13? Anybody see it? Where do you come from? Now, why does David ask him that question? After all, didn't the messenger say he was an Amalekite when he was talking to Saul? Didn't he announce the place of his home? I'm an Amalekite, and what information? So what information is David trying to gather from asking this question? I think, and this is the key part, I think he wants us to know, he wants to know why this Amalekite was with Saul. And more importantly, is he just some random passerby who happened to cross the king, maybe on a cross-country trip? Unlikely, but at the same time, 
Could he also be a foreigner who's living in Israel and knew what was going on and simply lucked out by being in the right place at the right time? See the difference? It's a giant one. The foreigner has a suspicious level of insider information on Israel and its king, especially for somebody who hails from a different nation. But it's this question that catches the killer. For this unnamed Amalekite has been dwelling in Israel as a sojourner. And his admission of the fact means that he raised his hand against the Lord's anointed, knowing he was the Lord's anointed, for he was a sojourner in Israel. See, mere suspicion was not enough for a just king to act upon, even though his suspicions were right. Instead, his questioning allows the messenger's own mouth to condemn him, admitting he had been living in Israel under the king for a while, yet he still proved willing to raise his hand against its king. That was a lot. A mere foreigner or passerby may not have known and therefore would have proven innocent in the eyes of the king. This man reveals his true colors and David's righteous instincts by taking credit for a regicide. In that decision, the messenger reveals his worldly thinking, that by bringing the royal symbols to David and by ushering in his new reign, he would receive a great reward. And that's the contrast that's underway in this passage a contrast that the author of the books of Samuel has been developing throughout the narrative. The contrast between God's ways and man's ways. The difference between God's people and the neighbors who surround them. It is only the worthless persons, to use a phrase from 1 Samuel, it's only the worthless persons who would raise their hand against the Lord's anointed. We saw the armor bearer in the last chapter refuse this request from Saul to run him through out of respect for the office. This messenger, though, as a foreigner, follows in the footsteps of Doeg the Edomite, who slaughtered 85 priests of the Lord, as well as their families. But you know who else he follows in the footsteps of as a worthless person? That is the sons of Eli, who disrespected and profaned the holy ordinances of sacrificial worship. Those who put filthy lucre an ill-gotten gain, a head of reverence and worship, those who reject the reign and rule of Israel's true king. And that's the test that David puts to this man, the test that David passes and the messenger fails. But not David, and on, not on his watch, at least this time. Righteous rule upholds the Lord's anointed by avenging this foreign killer. Right rule also requires a proper response to the Lord's anointed internally. And that leads me to my second and final point. The, the will of God requires the new regime to mourn the old regime. The will of the Lord requires the new regime to mourn the old regime, not to sneer at its downfall. In the first section, we actually see this side of the story as well. When David learns that Saul and Jonathan are dead, how did he respond to the death of Saul and Jonathan? Well, we know he tears his clothes, and he weeps, and he fasts, and he mourns for a whole day until evening. 
even though he'd been in the middle of questioning a messenger. When tragedy strikes, when the Lord's anointed has been killed, all bets are off. All business is put on hold. What I only noticed on my very last reading of the text, after so many previous ones, was who else joined David in that morning? Did you catch the detail? Verse 11b provides it. It says, and so did all the men who were with him. All the men who were with him also joined in mourning for Saul and Jonathan. After wondering why in the world David was so sparing of his enemy's life, even rejecting open opportunities to kill him, the man who was trying to kill him, those same men now see as David sees. They follow his lead into the tension and greater difficulty of living by a greater principle, that you don't touch the Lord's anointed, even if he's trying to kill you, for he is the chosen of the Lord. But David's reverence doesn't stop with himself. It doesn't stop with his men. He imparts it to his people, at least those who are with him at the time in Judah. So let's read the last section, and then we'll finish it up. Turn in your handout to the second page, and we'll begin in verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided, they were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. David begins this second section with lament. In fact, this poem is an example of a lament, a genre of poetry that Ralph Davis defines as such. Davis calls a lament a formal expression of grief or distress one that can be written, read, learned, practiced, repeated. So instead of like a, a cry of grief or a cry of distress, this is a formal presentation of grief. A lament to be taught to the people of Judah, as verse 17 says. Why would David want to teach the people this lament? I think we need to have an answer for that question. Why would he want this lament to be taught to the people? 
especially after Saul, all but undid the monarchy of Israel. Now, some people regard the poem as a form of propaganda. Some scholars consider this poem just straight propaganda, David trying to indoctrinate the people to be good Israelites and celebrate their king even though he was a bad one in hopes of celebrating the next one and carrying that momentum. But I think it, I think it escapes that charge um, by teaching something profound about death. And that lesson is this. When the Lord stands in between two enemies, those enemies can become in death what they were unable to be in life, and that is friends and brothers. When the Lord stands in between friends and enemies, right, they can become in death what they were not able to be in life, and that is friends and brothers. So let's take a quick look. Because the occasion for this poem is death in battle, David is going to use a fighting motif throughout the poem. So all the analogies are going to be to like beasts of prey, uh, weapons of war, the items of warfare, shields, bows, swords, all the like. He starts with a refrain. A refrain is like a chorus. It's going to repeat a couple of times in the psalm. And it says, it's not a psalm, sorry. It sounds like a psalm. How your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. That phrase is going to repeat three times in the poem. The term, he tells us, who we're dealing with, are mighty warriors, not diplomats who died in battle defending uh, the politics of Israel, but warriors who died defending the land from its enemies. He then uses stanza one. I tried to break, make sure this was breaking up nice and clean. Stanza one at verse 20 to factor in the enemy. So he starts by addressing the enemy and says, do not broadcast the news to them, for they are rejoicing at our defeat. For they are, uh, we want to give them no further cause to celebrate our suffering anymore. It's impossible that this news wouldn't get out, of course. David is simply saying, don't give them more ammunition. Don't publish it in the streets. They're celebrating our suffering. They're worshiping Dagon over this victory. We want to give them no further rights to worship. They're, they're wrong God. Stanza 2, verse 21. David names the site of Saul and Jonathan's deaths, and he curses it. He names it as a place hateful to all Israel, one that will be anathema to all Israel and its future generations. May nothing grow there. May no rain fall upon it. May it be forever barren as a spot of land. Stanza three. David uses the terms of sacrifice in stanza three. Blood and fat to describe the last stand of Jonathan and Saul. In, in stanza three at verse 22, he says, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. According to David, Jonathan and Saul did not turn and flee the battle, even though it was a situation of retreat. Instead, they offered up their lives as a living sacrifice to their God, defending the land. So it's kind of like a heroic last stand after uh, a whole bunch of awful leadership on Saul's part. If stanza three addressed the fighting of Jonathan and Saul, 
Stanza four, David uses to address their relationship. If any verse comes really close to propaganda, it is probably this one, mainly because of the statement he makes in verse 23. So if you would look at verse 23. David says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. We know that after Saul found out about Jonathan's friendship with David, and specifically the covenant the two made, he was furious. He even threw a spear at his own son. Thankfully, it missed. But nevertheless, it would hint at some division existing between father and son, and David being the cause of that division. But just as David submitted to the Lord and spared Saul, so too in death do we see Jonathan continuing to obey his father while staying loyal to David, of course. He marched into battle with his father and fought the Philistines to the death. And there both of them lay, as you guys already pointed out, side by side in death, both having given their lives in a common cause, the defense of the kingdom. Once again, death unites and allows us to see more truly, perhaps, than we did in the day-to-day moments of living. In death, Saul and Jonathan are not divided. Even in life, they might have been. In stanza five, David praises Saul for clothing Israel in beauty. When I first read this verse, I thought it was about as much as a compliment as David could give Saul. Uh, like, I guess I can find something nice to say. He caused Israel to prosper. We have nice red dyed clothing that Israel's wearing, thanks to his economic advances, which I'm not even aware of. Um, but David knows best. And that may be the best compliment that David could have paid him. But it is not a small one to beautify. And that beauty, while it seems mostly of a material sort, since he names uh, the luxury of clothing, the color of scarlet, ornaments of gold, it seems mostly material. Nevertheless, David is saying Saul did beautify um, and bless in that beautification. It's still something. And it's the sixth and final stanza, though, that David's most, is David's most personal. And perhaps also the most controversial verse in this poem. Uh, for in it, in verse 26, David describes the love of Jonathan as surpassing the love of women. Look at verse 26 with me. It says, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. The modern reader may think David is referring to a sexual love between himself and Jonathan. That interpretation is a misreading of the context of the poem. The comparison between Jonathan and women, as Davis points out in his commentary, and Matthew Lloyd-Jones before him, is not on the topic of romantic love, but of the fidelity between these two groups of people. The love of Jonathan is of another kind than romance. It is a love, it is a love that would lead the prince to forego his kingdom and covenant himself to always being second. Always a prince, never a king. In 1 Samuel 23, 17, Jonathan tells David, I will be second, you will be first. And that David will be 
the next ruler of Israel. That's the friend David has lost. And it's especially the death of Jonathan that is animating this entire poem, more so than the death of Saul. That last stanza should have read, how distressed I am over you, as Davis points out, my my brother Jonathan, not for you. He's distressed because Jonathan has been lost. He's distressed over Jonathan. He's not distressed for Jonathan's new condition because he knows he's in a better place. Jonathan has gone on to a better plane of existence, and it is David who's left to grieve the loss of his best friend, his true brother. And that is why David gets personal in this stanza. You notice over Saul, he's calling on the daughters of Israel to weep. Here in the final stanza, he's weeping himself. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, we read in Proverbs. And though David probably didn't write those words, his son likely did. It isn't such a stretch of the imagination that if he wanted this poem taught to all of Judah, that he would have taught it to his own son. And they would have shared anecdotes about the faithfulness of his friend to him. How incredible it would be to have the companion edition of 1 Samuel that shows us Jonathan's side of the story. Where do you find a friend like Jonathan? Where do you find a friend so faithful that he would lay aside his crown so that he might raise up another? Where do you find